I pretty much never do this, but there are so many meaningful and wonderful things happening in this week's book that I'm just going to go ahead and kick this episode off by sharing with you the summary from the back of my copy. Esperanza believed her life would be wonderful forever. She would always live on her family's ranch in Mexico. She would always have fancy dresses and a beautiful home filled with servants. Papa and Abuelita would always be with her, but a sudden tragedy shatters her world and forces Esperanza and Mama to flee to California, where they settle in a camp for Mexican farm workers. Esperanza isn't ready for the hard labor, financial struggles brought on by the Great Depression, and the the lack of acceptance she now faces. When Mama gets sick and a strike for better working conditions threatens to uproot their new life, Esperanza must find a way to rise above her difficult circumstances, because Mama's life depends on it. That summary is so good that it almost makes me want to read this book again right now, which I totally would anyway, because Pam Munoz Ryan's Esperanza Rising is that fantastic. This beloved, award-winning middle-grade book was published in 2000, and I can't believe I only recently read it for the first time. Esperanza Rising sets the stage for a conversation about so many important subjects. Immigrant narratives, labor movements, Mexican history, class, privilege, the patriarchy, mental health, the courage required to start over, spirituality, racial divides, and so much more. I am really excited to share this discussion with you. Before I do though, here is a little peek behind the scenes of recording this episode. The recording was scheduled for a recent Saturday afternoon, and I was not having a great day. I was having a bit of a low moment around the pandemic, plus the weird vibes of this holiday season. I know you know what I'm talking about. I was prepared and ready to record, but my energy around the whole thing was admittedly kind of low. That all changed when I met today's guests. We had so much fun talking about Esperanza Rising that we actually ended up just casually chatting for an extra hour after we finished recording. And in this age of Zoom fatigue, that's saying something. I can't wait for you to meet Marcy and Akko. Marcy and Akko are longtime friends and the hosts of the Colored Pages Book Club, a bi-weekly podcast where they discuss fiction, fantasy, and magical realism written by writers from diverse and colorful backgrounds. Come for the honest discussions and stay for the black nerd shenanigans, 90s cartoon references, and exposition about radical self-acceptance. And they have totally got you covered if you haven't read the books they're discussing. Don't worry about it. Check out the awesome things Marcy and Akko are doing on their website at thesecoloredpages.com, on Twitter at The Colored Pages, and on Instagram at These Colored Pages. Thank you so much, Marcy and Akko, for this thoughtful and fun conversation. For additional thoughtful and fun content, be sure you are following SSR on social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast or The SSR Podcast Community. The SSR Podcast Community is a chatty place where we swap interesting resources about the books discussed on the pod and share our personal nostalgia. I also offer a month's worth of episode previews every week in that group, so you can really read along with the show if that's your jam. We are now in the thick of the holiday season, and you can spread some SSR-specific holiday cheer by leaving a five-star rating or review of the show on iTunes, or posting about this episode to your Instagram story. Be sure to tag SSRPod so I can see. Rating, reviewing, and sharing only takes a few seconds, and it goes a long way for the podcast. Thanks to everyone who has already done it, and to everyone who will do it in the future. If you're looking for last-minute holiday gifts for the bookworms and SSR fans in your life, don't forget about the SSR Merch Shop. Visit www.ssrpodcast.com shop for SSR stickers, bookmarks, tote bags, and t-shirts. The stickers and bookmarks would make such fun stocking stuffers and are easy to mail to family members who you may not be seeing in person this year. Plus, you support the show with every purchase. You can also support the show by becoming a Patreon sponsor. For just a few dollars every month, you can take pride in knowing that you're keeping this little independent podcast going strong. And there are cool rewards up for grabs too. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar per month. Visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for all of the details and next steps. Thank you to all of the Patreon supporters tuning into this episode. Don't forget to support independent bookstores this holiday season. Thanks to Libro FM, you can do this even when shopping for audiobooks. The audiobooks you get from Libro FM are exactly the same as the ones you would purchase from big corporations, and they're the same price too. Plus, SSR listeners can cash in on a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. Go to Libro FM. That's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. This December, you might also consider buying a gift membership for the book lovers in your life. Why not buy a gift membership for yourself? After this year, you have totally earned it. 
There's more information at the link in my bio over on Instagram, or you can get all the details on Libro FM. I so appreciate my friends at Libro FM for the work they're doing to support small business and for their continued partnership with SSR. A little housekeeping before we get into this week's episode. Believe it or not, this is the last book episode of 2020. On December 22nd, I will be releasing a fun bonus listener sode featuring book insights from members of the SSR community. From there, the show will be on a brief winter hiatus while I gear up for another awesome year of the pod. New book episodes will be back starting on January 5th. Find me in the meantime on Instagram at SSRpod. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Marcy. Hi, Akko. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. Hi. Thank you so much for having us. Hello. So no big deal, but it is our last official book episode of... 2020. Okay, so I know everybody's like, fuck 2020. We're so happy it's over. And uh, I'm like, I have a complicated relationship with that because I'm like, who the hell knows what 2021 is going to look like? Mm. So I'm sort of like resistant to being like 2020 is the worst because like, who? I'm just trying to take it a day at a time. That being said, for those of you out there who are in the fuck 2020 camp, Let's celebrate that moment right here, right now, together mm. with Marcy and Akko and with a conversation about Esperanza Rising, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess my, my question is, can we not fuck 2020 and then possibly 2021 if if it's a called for, you know? <laughs> yeah. So we just want to demonize all years that make us sad. Is that where we're, that's where we're coming I down like- on this? Loki, that's been the energy. I feel like since like 2016, everyone's like, oh my God, 2016, yeah. like worst year. And I'm like, is every year just like the wor- like, <laughs> worst? What, like, what, what was the year that everyone's like, yeah, like that was like a mutually, like we all agree that was great. Like, I yeah. feel like that hasn't happened in a minute, if at all. Yeah. Yeah. I had a conversation with a friend the other day where I was like, at this point, I'm just taking it like week to week, day to day, sometimes minute to minute, because mm. like 2018 sucked for me on a personal level. Like, and I know a lot of people are like, 2018 was great. Nothing globally horrifying happened. And like, I don't know. It's all very complicated. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. But we're going to go out on a high note with the SSR podcast and with this conversation about Esperanza Rising. I have to tell you, I've gotten so many requests from people who wanted to hear this conversation. I know that there are a bunch of teachers in the SSR community who are actually getting ready to teach um, a unit about Esperanza Rising. Oh, wow. And when I told them that we were doing this, they're like, oh, this is going to be so great. It'll help me with my curriculum. So again, mm. no pressure. We're just holding them <laughs> <laughs> like actual certified educators okay <laughs> yeah Marcy's like oh sorry gotta go I have a thing <laughs> right <Bye>. um yeah <laughs> well let's get started so I think you brought this suggestion to me for this episode the book had been on my radar but I don't know that it was one of the ideas that I had brought to you for this particular episode do you each want to talk to me a little bit about any experience that you have with this book and or why you wanted to talk about it on today's episode I can probably go because I think Marcy hasn't hadn't read the book either. So it was actually my suggestion because I read it as a kid, I think, really young. And I used to live, used to flex in Texas. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, nice. <laughs> but I, I, we, we had it and we read it. And I remember being really moved by it as a kid because Texas is not the most liberal state. So there wasn't a lot of literature that reflected immigrant narratives. Um, I'm an immigrant. And so reading that in the story was really powerful for me. And the story is really, it deals with a lot of difficult topics in a nuanced way while still being kid friendly. I haven't found that many books that pulled this off that well. Mm. So yeah, that's what made me think. And of course, our our podcast is about um, colorful authors so authors of different backgrounds who have been marginalized and so I was like 
hey, I remember this book, Marcy. And Marcy was like, bet, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the story. Yeah, like, honestly, yeah, we were just, like, texting back and forth, like, okay, what should we read? And um, when Akka recommended Esperanza Rising, I looked into it, like, on Goodreads, and I was like, yeah, yeah, this this tracks. This is great. Let's do it. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah. But, Marcy, wasn't there also another book that we were going to suggest, but it, it turned out to be, like, a story about native people written by a white guy oh something about God. dolphins on an island oh, yes. yeah island of the blue dolphin yes. Yes. <laughs> yes so we have done that on the show and it was very complicated mm. like you said Akko it was it's a book about um, an indigenous girl written by a white man named Scott Odell I believe and I remember growing up it was like everybody loved it and it was like this is such a special book and then of course you know as time has gone on and we've become a little bit more I guess, attuned to the cultural issues that come up when a white mm -hmm. person tells the story of an indigenous person. I, I hate to use the word canceled. I hesitate to use the word canceled, but I think a lot of people have done some version of canceling that book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We saw it and we were like, it's going to be a no for us. <laughs> Pass. <laughs> Pass. Uh, so I had not read this book. It was published in 2000 uh, for listeners who are unfamiliar. It was written by the author Pam Munoz Ryan. And so I was 10 when this book came out. And I, I'm surprised because I don't even remember hearing about it when I was a kid, which feels weird because mm. it did get a lot of attention when it was published. It won like all the awards, rightfully so. But I, I was thinking about maybe why I hadn't heard about it. Around that time I moved. So I don't know if it was like, I don't know, maybe... When the book came out, a librarian at one school of mine shared about it, and then the, the librarian at the next didn't or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. I also, and I hate to say this, but because I grew up in a very white town, I wonder if this book just was never really like on the radar of my librarians and elementary school teachers. Mm -hmm. I cringe when I say that as a 30-year-old, but it wouldn't surprise me if that's why this book was never presented to me as a kid. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. So I had always like kind of heard of this book, but like I did, I just literally didn't know anything about it. Like I would see it. Like I remember seeing the cover and I was like, okay, I've seen this like a million times, but like, yeah, we never talked about it in like a class or like anything like that. I mean, I hope not because I hadn't read it. So it's like, if we did, it's like, girl, why did you read the book? But, um, Slacker. Right. So, so yeah, but I'm I always dead. was like, you know, somewhat familiar with it, um, at, at least visually. So, so yeah, it was definitely good to get the chance to like actually sit down and read it. Cause yeah, it's great and ages yeah. very well. It's yeah. True. Also funny story. If you guys want to know what my first thought when I chose the book was, was when I was nine, I remember a teacher giving it to us and me being like, Oh my God, this book is so huge. Like it's so, it's going to be so difficult. There's 200 pages. Yeah. And like when I grew up and I'm reading it at my big old age, I was like, this book is not huge. and It's not difficult. I was like, Oh, yeah. what a light read. Like, mm. right. <laughs> but I actually like, I like hesitated. I was like, oh, Marcy, I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish this book. <laughs> like, what? Anyway. It's like the widest margins. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, like when I got it from the library, I also was like, oh, this is a it like literally open to page one. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to take me like, like I could, I could low-key read this in a day if I'm really that dedicated. I mean, I'm not. I'm going to space it out. But like, <laughs> right. yeah, definitely, like it reads very, very quick. Yeah. Yeah. So what were your first impressions once you got into the book? We're meeting Esperanza. When we first meet her, it's 1924. And she's, I believe, seven years old. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a very brief little sort of flashback intro. But then once we're into like the meat of the story, it's 1931. She's 12, turning 13. She's living in Mexico. Her mm -hmm. father owns all this land. It's kind of glamorous. What were your first impressions? Marcy, for you, I know it was the first time meeting these characters. Akko, you were coming back to them. Tell me about that first like couple of pages, first couple of chapters. Mm. Okay, so I don't mind going first. I was really surprised how, I guess, connected I felt to the characters. I mean, I guess, spoiler, but not really, because like, it's like, y'all probably know this, but like, you know, when Esperanza's dad dies, like, I remember being like, wow, like, we were, we had like, pretty much one chapter with him at the very beginning, where, you, mm -hmm. you know, he and Esperanza were listening to the earth, and like, that scene alone just like, communicates so much about the kind of person that he was, and even just how people talked about him, I was like, wow, like, he died, and I like, feel it, and I feel like a yeah. lot of books don't, I mean, I, yeah, like, I feel like, you know, death is fairly common in literature, but, like, something about this one, I was like, oh, this actually, like, kind of hits different. Like, this, like, I feel, like, I'm really feeling Esperanza's trauma here. I, I, maybe some of that is just, like, how young she was, so you just really see those really raw, like, youthful thoughts around that whole experience um, that kind of, like, reframed it in a way. But, yeah, I was very surprised with how connected I felt to 
everyone with like, you know, not that many scenes having already established who they were. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I've talked about this on the show before, but I'm not generally an emotional reader. Mm-hmm. I'm not an emotional like movie watcher either. I just don't, I get maybe I just like don't connect that closely with characters on the page and in film. But I, I agree with you. Like I grew attached to these characters very quickly. I don't know if it was the writing. I don't know if it was just like the fact that the world is sort of on fire and everything feels very tender and like upsetting. But yeah, I similarly was like, I felt, I really felt the death of Esperanza's father. I think you're right. It was like at the end of the first like full chapter that it becomes clear that he's gone. What about you, Akko? Yeah, I I thought that there was something in the way the author wrote the characters that made them very relatable and the way she Mm. described the food and the touch of things and the farm and how things looked that you were, yeah, she was very good at describing things so that you were in the story. You could almost visualize it in your mind as you were reading, which I think that's what, by that point, you're, you kind of like, you're in the story too. You're t- hanging out with Esperanza. You're right. you know, <laughs> crocheting with Abuelita. Like you're like, oh yeah, that's me. And then, so then you're like, I've known these people forever. So I think it's a testament to the writer's ability and and more so the older I am ability to do that for a children's book I'm I'm very impressed with because it's not like you can use you know like very nuanced lexicon but she still does it all using very simple terms Mm. the thing that made me think and it's I think it's because I had already read it and part of me wondered because it was taking place in 1924 in Mexico and you know there's like a, a history there and they even talked about in the book of different revolutions it made me wonder how much of this was from her perspective of someone of a higher class I, I wanted to know more about Miguel or even other people in the, the, the town mm, something yeah. about it I, I was like I I was wrapped up in her imagination and her way of seeing things but as my adult mind I was like yeah, but is that really how it is? Like, I know you say your dad's a great guy and he's given some land to the, you know, to other people, but is that accurate? Is that a real description of like, you know, the divvying up of property in this post-revolutionary Mexico, which mm. eight-year-old me doesn't care about. Eight-year-old me was like, ooh, dresses. <laughs> your life sounds awesome. Like, I'm hyped for this quinceanera. Like, that's about right. to slap. Her friend, what, what yeah. was Marisol? I was like, ooh, this is about to be lit. Yeah, they're going to have the best time. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So listeners, um, if you're not familiar with the story, we meet Esperanza and we also meet her family. And then this other family that they're not only the servants of Esperanza's family, but they're also like longtime family friends. There's Alfonso and Hortensia and their son Miguel, and they live on Esperanza's father's property and they take care of the family and they do a lot of the farming. And to Akko's point, it seems as though Esperanza's father has given them some land, I, I guess, that also means that they have some agency to like sell what they grow on that particular part of his land and earn some money that way, in addition to earning money from Esperanza's family directly. So yeah, I mean, we're meant to believe like he's this benevolent guy. He's come out on the revolution sort of on the side of good and that, yes, there are all of these people in his country who are rebelling against wealthier people of their class, but he's doing the right thing. And it does seem as though throughout the book, Miguel, like, has this thing where he idolizes Esperanza's dad. Like I kept thinking there were these moments throughout where like it seemed as though Miguel was the only one who really could empathize with Esperanza missing her dad. It seemed like this almost like worship thing, which was weird for me at moments. I have to agree with you. I'm like, I don't know that he would actually adore Esperanza's father to this degree. Like he seemed to appreciate a lot of nice things that he'd done for the family, but yeah, I, I echo what you're saying. It would have been interesting to hear or to get more of his perspective. This book could have been really cool if it was told um, like an alternating perspective, so maybe mm-hmm. between Esperanza and Miguel, not to say that it's not amazing as is, but to address your point, I think that could have been a really cool format. And maybe as like adults, that's something that we would call for more. Mm. Mm, uh, that's true. Definitely, definitely. It's interesting you bring up Miguel because that was something that I thought about a lot. Like even his relationship with Esperanza, like, you know, they had that weird moment at the beginning where she was like, you know, there's this river dividing us. Like we can never really truly 
run in the same circle, which I feel like as a kid, I would have read it that as like, oh, like there's like a class difference here. This makes sense. But there was also just like a racial element as well with like Mm. Miguel, you know, and his parents being indigenous that like also played in that I was like, I also would have loved to kind of have seen that explored a bit more. Just sort of like these racial dynamics that were there, both when they were in Mexico, but also when they got to the US as well. But yeah, so that's something that kind of came up as well. Or I was like, yeah, this could have been like, yeah, Miguel's perspective or really just anyone else's would have been also really fascinating just to kind of compare contrast to as well. Yeah. Yeah, the relationship between Miguel and Esperanza is fascinating throughout because he's like sort of a love interest. I mean, I definitely felt like he had some of these like sort of very typical Prince Charming attributes. Like Mm -hmm. he always seems to be saving the day. He literally runs into a burning building to save Esperanza's grandmother. He literally like crosses. (laughs) Literally did that. Literally did that. It happened. (laughs) Then he like crossed dangerous international borders to go back and bring the same grandmother over the border he, he crossed twice to then bring yeah. abuelita back to be with esperanza and her mom in the united states like he's a hero like let's just call it yeah. like it is. yeah and he also has this very sort of idealized picture of what his life in america could be like which i think we should definitely talk about later on because i was trying to unpack it myself and I have some thoughts, but I think I need like more conversation to really break it down. But it's sort of like it never comes to fruition. Like they're never, they're never romantic. He's older, I think. He's like three or four years older than Esperanza is. And there's these class differences, like you're referencing. So yeah, he was an interesting character. I really liked him, but it would have been interesting to get inside his head a little more. Definitely, yeah. definitely. I feel like for Miguel, what I I think it might maybe it's because we just watched brandy cinderella for a different podcast (laughs) but um it did feel to me like a subversion of the prince because the whole story i think is a subversion of the cinderella story Mm. while still being a fairy tale and miguel is this prince charming but to say that he's a prince charming without the wealth and status that usually accompanies a prince charming character and he's Mm. he's charming because he is in his character a good person Mm -hmm. and i thought that i actually found that to be kind of refreshing and a little bit cute Um, (laughs) you know when he and and the fact that you know what's important to him is to make sure that her family is together that she has you know her mother and abuelita and that moment when she's bad at sweeping and he comes in and he's like being serious like okay we need you need to learn how to sweep because that was not a fun scenario for you but also like Mm. how could you have known was such a an emotionally resonant moment like I felt so it felt so warm to have someone care about you that deeply to both like give you the grace of not knowing but also be very serious in helping you get better I I was like that's a better thing to teach a kid to hope for than say like Prince Charming came and he got you a house Mm -hmm. or something (laughs) I don't know Oh, for sure for (laughs) sure I think you're hitting on something interesting which I was thinking about a lot throughout the book which is that like Okay, so to make the very long version of the story short, unfortunately, Esperanza's father is murdered on the day of her 13th birthday, sort of as a result of these lingering effects of the revolution. There are these bandits that kill him and a few other men when he's on his way back from town. They even like take the gifts that he had picked up for Esperanza out of his pocket, which just like broke my heart in a few extra million pieces. And for a variety of reasons, which I think we'll circle back to, Esperanza and her mom and Alfonso and Hortensia and Miguel all travel to California to find work there. And obviously it's a huge lifestyle change for the family. Esperanza is used to having like the finest things of life. And all of a sudden now she has to work. She's living in these really challenging conditions. It's hard. It's a really hard transition for anybody, let alone a 13 year old girl who's been raised with a certain set of expectations. And something that she finds, Akko mentioned sweeping. She finds that she is not like in possession of these very basic skills that the vast majority of people have had to learn in order to survive. And so one of her tasks is to sweep this platform at the farm where they're living. She has to babysit these babies that they're staying with. She has to do all of these things. And she also has to like adjust to new routines. So one of the scenes that like really struck me with that is that when they take a bath, like there's one day that all of the women take a bath together and they like close the blinds and they bring the tub in. And Esperanza is accustomed to Hortensia, like Mm. bathing her, like giving her the princess treatment. And because Hortensia is there, Esperanza being a 13 year old, puts her arms out and is like, okay, great, like bathe me. And I think it's so complicated because similar to the sweeping scene that you referenced, Akko, it's like, 
there's a part of you that wants to be like, oh, you're so spoiled. Like you need to learn how to do this. But at the same time, it's not her fault that she hasn't been taught something else. It's not her fault that she was never taught to sweep. It's not her fault that she's been taken care of so much that she just assumes that this woman who used to work for her father is going to undress her and then bathe her. Like Mm. this is just what she has been conditioned to do. And now the real, like the real test of her character is, is how she's going to be able to adapt to it. Right. Right. I agree. And, and also I I think if she had been an adult, I wouldn't have that level of room for that, but because she's 13, I'm, I'm kind of like, okay, honestly, (laughs) to, to be hit with like a sudden (laughs) paradigm shift at 13 is, is there, there were, it made her more human. And I think to be honest, even in her character, an adult with privilege can learn what it means to have to examine your privilege and re evaluate how and why you have that place and if it Mm. is in fact accurate or sustainable i guess is Mm -hmm. the right word and i think also it aids to that this is all from her perspective so it's like we see sort of the wheels turning and how she's like for example like when she was on the train you know throughout mexico on their way to the u.s and like you know they had this interaction where i think there was like a child that tried to touch esperanza's doll and esperanza kind of felt weird about it and like her mom was like don't don't treat people like that like that's actually yeah. unacceptable and it's like you see her being like oh mom like oh my god but also it's like she's like tr- like she's like you, you see that effort going in she's like you know I'm trying my best I'm really trying to do what I can and so because like I think she's so willing to shift and like she she acknowledges the labor that people are putting in to make sure that she's okay in a way that like she can't really at the moment reciprocate I, I definitely was kind of like okay Esperanza I see you doing the thing I'm not Right. I'm not mad. It's like, I get it. it, it it's a You're transition. Trying. You're trying. Yeah. Exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the circumstances that forced them to leave Mexico. Let's circle back to that because I was especially interested in this. So after Esperanza's father dies, we learn that she has these two uncles who are terrible. Oh. Um, like the worst. We especially, hate we hate them. We especially hate Tio Luis who, as far as I'm concerned, can like, you know, what's the saying? Like hit the bricks or whatever. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Not into him. And he shows up and we learn that in Mexico and I'm sure everywhere else at this time in history, it was not customary for women to own property. And it wasn't even customary for women to inherit property from their husbands or their fathers if and when those men died unexpectedly. So when Esperanza's father dies, we learn that Tio Luis, who um, runs a bank in town, like casually owns the property now. He's like, I basically (laughs) own everything that you're concerned with. I think maybe Esperanza's mom still owns the house, but it's sort of like irrelevant because he owns the property and like the farming that they do on the property is what makes them their money right so he's like i have a great solution for you like i'm gonna here's what we're gonna do everything's gonna be fine you're gonna marry me let's get married (sighs) and i will make sure that you don't have any problems i will make sure that the servants that have worked for you for years who you love and care for get to keep their jobs i will make sure that uh your daughter continues to be fed and like dressed and i will make sure that like your whole life doesn't fall into a disgusting mess that's his proposition. And it's a threat. I mean, it sounds like I'm joking about it, but that's not like, that's essentially what he says. I just couldn't get over what an unwinnable situation he was putting Esperanza's mother into Mm -hmm. because like, oh, there's just not, there was no right way for her to go. Like either she, she denies his proposal and she risks truly everything and not only everything for herself, but everything for these people that she's grown to love. Like, Alfonso Hortensia and Miguel are like her family. And if she can't like pay them anymore, or if she can't take care of them, like they're shit out of luck. Yeah. And she's also like risking the health, safety and care of herself and her daughter when they're in the middle of grieving, which like she hasn't even had time to do. But if she marries him, then like she's marrying this terrible guy. And I'm sure she's afraid of what that will mean for her life. So it's just like oh, my heart broke for her. And it just was a reminder of like, how, how fucked up, like so many of these systems that our nations are built on were and and continue to be in a lot of cases, like the fact that these are the options that a woman has, it's wild to think about. 
Yeah. And, you know, like to that point, when I was reading the story, I was thinking about how old she is. Yeah. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, so they probably married young. Like she probably had Esperanza at 18. So I was like, right. what? He's in her early 30s. I was and thinking so, that too. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, okay, when I was a child, and I read this, you know, I was closer to Esperanza's age. But the more I read the story as an adult, exactly, I just kept thinking about her and her position and to have to raise a 13 year old in these circumstances. And I was, there was almost some, I was so impressed with her ability to mm. be strong and to teach Esperanza and to be patient with her and not frustrated and to just quickly understand like, okay, I'm not going to give up my morality to marry this man who honestly is going to separate me from my kid and right. probably won't even treat these people that I love and care for well. Right. And, and for her to have to do all that analysis, I was like, that is Ooh, difficult. But and then it, it it made me think of a couple of things. Like one, I was like, okay, you could have put the land in Alfonso's name. Mm. You could have, but mm. you didn't because of race and class. Right. And so those things still still as much as a good guy as her father was, like it was you know your stepbrothers don't like you. <laughs> you know they're yeah. bad people. Like you yeah. know that. And as much as Esperanza is your pride and joy, as much as you you love your wife, as much as you trust Alfonso, who you said built this with you, if you had given it to Alfonso, I'm a hundred percent sure things would have gone better. Yeah. But he couldn't because he also this is what institutional oppression is, right? These are the perpetuations that even the best quote unquote person in the story is still affected by that type of circumstance. So that made me think, again, eight-year-old Akko was like, I hate Tios. <laughs> They're the worst. Yeah. Uncles <laughs> are terrible. <laughs> and just like how quickly he levers that was just, I'm like, mm-hmm. is the body even cold for real? Like, right. it was just right. he so immediately was like, so here are your options. Um, I'm good regardless. And I'm like, oh, right. you're actually the worst. And then even when they got to the U.S. and like they couldn't even communicate with um, Abuela just because they were like, oh, he's going to like intercept everything we ever do. Like he is active, proactively making sure that our lives are as difficult as possible. And it's like, for what? For what? Like, have you not already won? Do you not already have right. to win? Like, what do you what do you want? Like, honestly. Also, how much money did you waste burning down a whole house? Yeah. Like, you did all that. For yeah. Real. I mean, yeah. He burnt their house to the ground after Esperanza's mom denied his first proposal. And then after that happens, he's like, oh, wait, I have the quote. He says, I have come to give you another chance. Uh, Gross. If you reconsider my proposal, I will build a bigger, more beautiful house and I will replan everything. Of course, if you prefer, you can live here with the servants as long as another tragedy doesn't happen to their homes as well. There is no main house or fields where they can work. So you can see that many people's lives and jobs depend upon you. And I am sure you want the best for Esperanza. Do you not? Oh my God. Can you believe? It's so evil. You've already (laughs) burned her home to the ground. Mm -hmm. Her her husband has been gone for what? Like maybe a week tops? Right. That's the thing that kept that kept coming into my head in this first part of the book is that like, I think you said it, Marcy, like the body is not even cold. And this woman who is probably 30, 31 at most has not even been given the time to grieve a, a shocking tragedy like her husband literally like left the house to go to work one day and then didn't right. come home because he was murdered and this is the kind of bullshit that she's dealing with and I was happy because I felt like later in the book there were some more explicit references to mental health like definitely more explicit yeah, than definitely. I've seen in a lot of other books yeah. that I've read for kids so I was happy that we circled back to that at some point but at this point in the story I was like this woman like needs help because her yeah. mental health cannot be in a good place but she does say that she's going to reconsider their proposal and i think like it's largely because she feels such responsibility for these families that they employ that she doesn't want to be held responsible or she doesn't want to feel like she's responsible for putting them in danger and then the book goes on to say esperanza felt confused her uncle said he would replace everything as it was but she could not imagine mama being married to anyone but papa she looked at mama's face and saw sadness worry and pain Mama would do anything for her, but if Mama married Tio Luis, she knew that everything would not really be as it was. Tio Luis would send her away, and she and Mama wouldn't even be together. Like, Oof. 
Oh, it's so heavy. Yeah. Mm. And, and you really look at that. And it's like, and, and Akko, it's funny you mentioned this because, yeah, like realizing that like, I'm much closer to, you know, Ramona's age than Esperanza's. Yeah. It's like, she really just took a complete, mm-hmm. she was like, I'm just going to flip a coin. We'll just going to see what happens. Like, literally, mm-hmm. these are my, op- like, to just be like, we're just going to jump into the unknown. I'm just going to trust you all and like we're just gonna see what happens like that's just with with your daughter at that oh my god i'm like that is that's some kind that's courage that like it's it's beautiful to see it so illustrated like illustrated so well in a children's book but in general i'm like wow like damn yeah and i think like what's really what i what still resonated with me now as it did in the past was when you talk about immigrant narratives these are the two it's it's a matter of balancing two social structures and usually if you've immigrated, it's because the last one also was not favorable to you. Mm-hmm. Right. And, it, and it's usually for a different reasons. So I'm African. I'm not I'm not Latinx. But the idea of kin and the complexities there and how your fortunes may change. And it, it was it's that narrative of of the interconnected communities and the pluses and minuses to those and how that caused such a difficulty in her life is so familiar mm-hmm. to the immigrant narrative. And you're almost like it's so to watch it you're like oh man that is the story choosing one social construct that was difficult for you for another one that is difficult but perhaps Mm. maybe hopefully given the circumstances better and it's something I I think a lot of people juggle I I don't know reading in in the kids book I was like this is it like that's it that's that crux is it and I I, it's very familiar Mm. yeah and I think I think that me the Miguel character in particular like is sort of the author's device to express that a little bit more directly maybe because I feel like he throughout the book is the one and his dad a little bit too coming out and being like, yeah, but we have a better shot at things being Mm -hmm. somewhat better for us here. And obviously Mm -hmm. that's because they come from a different class and Esperanza does and like things were not as great for them as they were for her in Mexico. But I feel like he throughout the book comes back and talks about like, but remember, even though things are really terrible, like at least there's a chance for them to turn around, mm. which I think seemed to me throughout to be like, that's the gamble that that people take when they immigrate. And he is like mm-hmm. the one who's really like laying that out there for kid readers who might not necessarily understand it. I wanted to point out a, we're going to jump to the end here for a second, but um, when Esperanza is having a conversation with Miguel really close to the end of the book where she's like, everything's still terrible. She says, is this the better life that you left Mexico for? Is it nothing is right here? Isabel will certainly not be the queen, no matter how badly she wants it, because she is Mexican. You cannot work on engines because you are Mexican. We have gone to work through angry crowds of our own people who threw rocks at us. I am afraid they might've been right. They sent people back to Mexico, even if they don't belong there, just for speaking up. We live in a horse stall and none of this bothers you. Have you heard that they're building a new camp for Okies with a swimming pool? The Mexicans can only swim in it on the afternoon before they clean it. Have you heard they will be given inside toilets and hot water? Why is that, Miguel? Is it because they are the fairest in the land? Tell me, is this life really better than being a servant in Mexico? And Miguel says, in Mexico, I was a second-class citizen. I stood on the other side of the river, remember? And I would have stayed that way my entire life. At least here, I have a chance, however small, to become more than what I was. You obviously can never understand this because you have never lived without hope. Mm. Everybody take a minute. Everybody just take a second. That one gets me. Yeah. Because I think that speaks a little bit to what you were saying, Akko, which is like, what's the what's the bigger risk here? Like when you're making this kind of a decision to make this kind of a massive move, a huge change in your life that is very dangerous, what what do you have to weigh? Like where is the bigger risk to stay or to go? Right. Yeah. And it's like, I think the story is optimistic, so that's good, but the cost is very strong. Like the cost is, is heavy, even and, and and it's almost like they're saying we'll make when Miguel goes and gets Abuelita, he's kind of saying like, what's we're going to make this work. Like right. we're going to mm-hmm. make it worth what we've given up. Although for them, I mean, the Tios kind of sucked. So if they stayed there, things were not going to be good. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's it, the good question. If, if Esperanza's father had stayed alive, Miguel did have a chance to do and probably a better shot at becoming because, you know, he, he would have had I think he said, um. I don't know what they called it, but someone to vouch, basically about someone to vouch for him to work at the train station. And he wouldn't have faced the racism that he's going to face in America. 
But unfortunately, the dad's dead, so that's not going to happen. So they do go to America. Esperanza's mom like lies to the uncle and says that she's going to marry him, but then they escape in a wagon and they go on this long journey to California. And yeah, as I indicated in that last quote from Esperanza, things are not great when they get there. Mm-hmm. It's pretty bad, especially when you compare it to the standards that she had for her life in Mexico. They're all living in very close quarters because the number of rooms that you're allotted on these farms and in the camps that the workers live in is based on how many men there are. So if you have one man in your family, then you're only given one very small cabin. And there are a lot of people, a lot of women to this one man that Esperanza and her mother have traveled with. And so there's beds being shared with people they don't know. There's no hot water. There's no indoor toilets. It's very much not what she's used to. And then Esperanza's mom gets really sick, like yeah. scary sick. Yeah. And as it was happening, I was like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Same. Right, right. Same. I was like, oh, my God, please don't do this. Please don't do this. I was like, Pam, you, I was like, you... Pam, you know, Ryan, do not ruin my Christmas. Right. <laughs> please, just, just give us this, please. Yes, yes. Because Abuelita was not able to come because she's still injured from the fire that right. Miguel saved her from. So she's like kind of waiting to travel until they have the money. And now Esperanza's alone. But everybody had laughed at her before when she said that she was going to work when they were sort of like talking about the plans to go to the U.S. in the first place. She was like, yeah, I'll work too. And her whole family laughs and they're like, okay, whatever. Like, <laughs> right. You work hilarious. Right. But now that her mom is out of work, she got something called, I believe, valley flu or valley virus basically is what mm. happens after there's a dust storm and you get dust yeah. particles stuck inside your lungs. And because she's not native to the area, she doesn't know how to fight the infection. She's in the hospital. She can't work. And now Esperanza is responsible for her mom's medical bills, for taking care of herself, and also for putting money away so they can bring her grandmother over eventually. Right. Which is a lot for 13. That is a lot. But I also want to recognize that there's a lot of immigrant kids now who came over without parents who are not much older than Esperanza or her the same age who are in these circumstances. So it's I think what got me about the book actually was how much it paralleled yeah. today. Yeah. It actually hurt my heart. Like when they were like, wow, it would be terrible to be separated from your family. And you're like, you know, 2020. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it is. It is awful to separate children from their parents. That is a terrible yeah. thing to do. And or even yeah, everything about sending people back for no reason. That makes no sense. People who are citizens, people who aren't, but who have come here to work or just live their lives and have a better opportunity. It really hurt. But what was interesting, because it was written in 2000, which was actually, I think, the beginning of ICE and like more extensive deportation measures. And so for it to be about 1924, but also sort of being written in a 2000 context, but being read in 2020, I was like, there are so many layers here. Yeah, <laughs> layered. <laughs> but also ICE is awful. Fuck ICE. So Correct. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. I I had similar feelings as I was reading it. And like, there's the scene. So there's this interesting thing happening that Esperanza is learning about where there are some farm workers who want to strike because they're really concerned about losing their jobs. There's all of these other people coming in who are willing to work for less, which will put these Mexican immigrants out of work because they're asking for more money. And so all of these strikers, including a girl named Marta, who is like terrible to Esperanza from the beginning, they're like, great, like we're all going to strike. We're not going to work and they're going to have to change the way they treat us. And there's this sort of big divide among the community about the people who think that that's a good strategy and who don't. And there's a scene about two thirds of the way through the book, I think, when Esperanza is now working full-time to support her mom. And so these decisions are now like feeling much more real to her than they were at the beginning of the book because like she wasn't the one who was having to like consider what all of this meant, like what the striking Mm -hmm. meant and what the implications would be for her if she decided to stop working. So she's, she's working at this farm and there are a lot of people also working there who are striking. Well, I guess they're not working because they're striking. And the owner of the farm called immigration services and Esperanza witnesses all of these people being put on a bus and basically they're just like going to be sent back to Mexico and nobody's even like it's so upsetting just to like to think about it period but then to think about a 13 year old girl like watching it and not understanding what's going on and also like remembering that she's alone in this country like 
Her mom's in a hospital bed. She hasn't been able to communicate with her in weeks. Like she doesn't know what the hell is going on. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know what she's supposed to do. Like she's just trying to make the best decision she can. And then she has this like kind of a crisis of conscience because then Marta, this girl who had been fucking with her since the day she arrived in the US, she finds that Marta is hiding in this shed and like avoiding being part of this terrible like roundup and Esperanza has to decide if she's going to turn her in or if she's going to keep quiet kind of at risk of like potentially getting deported herself oh yes (laughs) it's wild yeah yeah I I literally was reading that and I was like this could go so left yeah if they Mm -hmm. know if they find out that Esperanza knew and like was active in hiding Marta like she Mm -hmm. was like you will stay here for the next several hours if you're going to like, you know, escape the situation. And like, I mean, luckily it didn't come to that, but I was just like, it it, it just shows like, I don't it know. Like, it, it really could have. And like, honestly, I, it makes me just really look at the character development. Cause I'm like Esperanza mm-hmm. on page 30. I don't think she would have made the same no. decision. <laughs> like yeah. the shift was so, I, like in that moment alone, I was like, oh, so you have like changed. Like you mm. are just a completely, like priorities have absolutely shifted. Paradigms are already settled and shifted. Like you were just on a completely different energy. Cause honestly, I was like, I mean, it would be hard, I think, to look at someone in that situation, but also too, I mean, there's just so much fear. Like people were like, I mean, I don't want to strike. Like I'm trying, like I'm barely making it as it is. Like mm-hmm. I'm really not trying to like put it a risk to anything. So I would not, honestly, if she was like, look, I don't want the smoke. I'm not going to even put myself in this situation. I'm trying to pay for my mom's health care. If like I get deported, like what's going to happen to her? You know, like, there was just so much that I was like, again, I-, I think just, yeah, reading it now, it just like hits different. Cause I think if I was younger, I'm not sure if I would have like picked up on just how layered that one scene alone yeah. was. Yeah, she has this moment and I thought that I had pulled the quote out, but I guess I haven't. But she has a moment around that scene where I remember her being like, under different circumstances, like this could have been me, Mm -hmm. like under different circumstances, I could have been the one at risk of being sent back to Mexico for like no reason at all. And being separated from my mom without her knowing where I was. And like, that was the, the thing that made her decide to like, let Marta just keep hiding. And then she actually helped Marta escape from the shed later on, like she brought her clothes to put on to sort of disguise herself when she left. And it made me think about this thing that my grandmother used to say. So this is side of my family that's Jewish. And um, my grandmother was born in the US in the 30s. And she always used to say, um, like, but for the grace of God, I go like, Mm -hmm. it's only because I was born on this side of the ocean that like, I am here. And if you know, one generation earlier, my ancestors had made different decisions, and we were still in Europe, I wouldn't be here potentially. Mm. And so that saying kept coming up in my head, like as I was finishing the rest of the book, even when that scene was over, just thinking about like, but for the grace of God, I go like, it's only because of really like one decision or one circumstance that Esperanza was even in a position to like make certain choices of her own. Right. Yeah. This book, I, I sometimes I wonder if the reason this doesn't give them to more children to read is because it forces you to empathize yeah. in a society that really is still wrought with division on racial lines and and class lines right but it forces you to to understand that the people that you might be looking down on are you yeah, yeah. in any given circumstance and that's where i think the privilege of esperanza is the best used to show you that Look, Esperanza is any different from you, or or Miguel isn't any different from Esperanza or from you, and right. I think it's so effectively done. And also, I like Loki. Love this book. Like, try to tell us, you know, like fuck capitalism and everyone organized. <laughs> like, I was like, yes, like get, put this to the, in the kids' mind because they explain so succinctly what the issue is here. If everybody has to eat, yeah, why are we up against each other? If all of our conditions suck. And we're the ones picking stuff for other people to eat. Like, mm. why are we fighting each other? You know, it, we are stronger together. But because these systems are oppressive, the stakes are high. And they are highest for us, you know. And if we decide to help people, it costs us so much. And yet, yeah, to see people do it anyway. You know, to see on the train, I forgot the other woman with the, with the hens, mm. giving her chickens away, giving people coin. And it yeah. is the point, like... Yeah, a lot of people when when they don't have still give. It, it, it just, it, mm. I don't know. It just moved me a lot, and it made me think like, yeah, that is the energy, and 
I don't know, from a young age, that is something that needs to be taught. And actually, young people emulate that all the time. A lot of organizers are literally teenagers. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Miguel said something when that woman, when they met that woman on the train, I think he said, like, the rich help the rich and the poor help people who have less than they do. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Which I thought was really beautiful. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's such like, um, there's so many important issues that I think that this book can teach kids about. I was wondering, like, as I was reading this, if I had read this when I was a kid, like, would I have understood all of this content about organizing and about what it means to strike and like, right. would I have been able to translate that? And I don't know that I would have, but I, I guess it doesn't really matter because it's like just important to start the conversation early. And like, even if you can't necessarily like speak that as a kid in like a particular, like with a particular kind of vocabulary, you're at least mm. beginning to understand what that looks like and like why those issues are important and how it can play out in people's lives. So I do think that that's really cool. It's, I like love that the author um, included that. I, I don't know if you um, read the author's note in the back of this book or if your editions even had an author's note, but the book is um, heavily based on the author's grandmother, yeah. whose name was Esperanza, which I thought was interesting. It wasn't like exactly biographical, or, like perfectly like matched up with her life, but she too immigrated when she was a kid and like had come from a lot of money in Mexico and then sort of had to adjust in all these different ways to life in the U.S. So that was interesting sort of background material that I would recommend listeners check out. This is a small thing, but I couldn't stop thinking about it throughout the lack of ability that they have to communicate with family back home. Yeah. Mm. Especially after Esperanza's mom gets sick and is in the hospital and like shit's really hitting the fan. I'm cursing a lot on this episode today. Sorry, everyone. Um, I'm just like enraged, and it's the end of the year. Um, going out with a bang. So here we are. Um, Love to see hello. it. Hello. Um, the shit's really hitting the fan, and she can't even like. Not only can she not call Evelita, but she can't even send a, a letter. letter because yeah. the uncles are like watching the post office, and it just made me feel so appreciative of the technologies that we have today, like especially in a year like we've had when we don't really have the ability to see so many family members and and loved ones, just to be able to like send a text and be like, hey, I have a cold. These people like can't even access their family members when it's a matter of life and death. And I just think, I don't know, I think I forget about like what, I, I lose perspective on that sometimes. Yeah, it's a Definitely. it's a really, really good point, especially in a year in which when someone has COVID, I'm sorry, I'm going to put a trigger warning myself here because this is about to get dark, but, and you can't go see them in the hospital, like imagine that, but we don't have phones. Mm-hmm. Imagine right. how terrible that is. And, right. and over, yeah, in the past, like all you had was like, even the part where the father is away and no one knows what's happening. Like I was like, where's yeah. the cell phone? And you're like, in 1924, boo. <laughs> <laughs> it's not- it's, it's- you can't track him so like yeah Yeah. exactly you're like it's so nerve-wracking as a concept yeah Yeah. I mean my husband went to pick up Chinese food last night and I was literally like tracking him I was like how many minutes is he away right now (laughs) but that's because you were hungry not because you're like where is that food let's get on the plate yeah I definitely guys it wasn't an issue of trust I just wanted my dumplings really bad um but yeah that's an important clarification I wanted those dumplings I have leftovers I'm gonna have those after we're done but And and also when, when Esperanza's mom is in the hospital later on and they like, won't let her go visit because her mom has gotten like so sick and it actually was very reminiscent of current times and that like Mm. her mom's condition had taken such a turn for the worse that like, if she were exposed to even like a small cold that Esperanza could bring in, then she could die. Mm -hmm. So Esperanza can't see her mom at all. And I think like, if that were to happen today, you would have a doctor that would probably call you every other day like you could make an arrangement with a doctor who would be in touch with you or maybe Mm -hmm. you know on a rare occasion that your loved one would wake up and be able to communicate they could text you Mm -hmm. so Esperanza is just like waking up every day and going to work on this farm and she has no idea if her mom's even alive like I had a moment where I was like if something happened to her mom would they even call her or would she have to wait until she decided to go to the hospital and then they'd be like oh this happened a week ago yeah it's so it's really interesting because honestly, so reading through all of this, so personally, I'm not like a particularly religious person, but it was interesting kind of seeing sort of that tie in of like just the uncertainty of like everyone's circumstances and that lack of communication and how they would use like religion and prayer to sort of like bridge some kind of conversation, um, like in the back of where they were staying, like they had, I, I want to say Miguel 
and his dad like sort of built this like altar where they could just sort of pray and like feel like kind of feel that connection spiritually and like just kind of like religion as that conversation religion as a way to sort of like provide some comfort there i feel like it kind of for me reading this i was like oh like this is like it it, it, it kind of put in context just like oh yeah this this is like part of many reasons as to why this is like such a like foundational force for so many people and it's something that like nowadays we don't necessarily have to worry about like the idea of just being completely disconnected but back then it's like oh yeah like if you had no idea what's going on you're just working on a farm you're like my mom could be alive or not my grandmother could be alive or not it's like having some kind of conduit to to sort of express that and have those conversations and express those concerns is definitely really really important so yeah i think this book really made me think you think and marcy your point makes me think that sort of religion is kind of the the cultural embodiment of hope or faith you know what i mean of the intangible made more tangible and you really see that in this book and probably other books too this is probably not the only book that makes it like espresso rising like really religion it has a monopoly oh my god Sorry. but yeah I, I, that your point is well taken i think yeah i agree well akko you've read this book before when you were a kid so i'm going to put this question to you and i'm curious Ooh. what your answer is it's kind of our big final question here on ssr and it's the last time i'm asking it in 2020 so on the whole, since you did read this book when you were a kid, how has this recent reread held up to your memory? Has it has the book held up, do you think, for the most part? Has it let you down? Mm, yeah, so it's actually really interesting because there were parts that I knew were coming that I knew would upset me because they were so influential when I was a kid. And I actually I hadn't thought about this book in years until we were going to read it again. But I actually hesitated to read it because I was like, oh, I know there are some things that are just going to make me like choke up. And I think it, I, I think it blows past expectations. I, I think, yes, every child should read this book. I think it kind of reminds me in a lot of ways of the nuance of Americana mm. and that mm. book, but in a children's book, I, I, it's just the descriptions are amazing. The way it's told is amazing. It, it tracks for kids. It has the same level of effectiveness, I think, on adults. As an older person, I think my only thing is, we give so much space for the idea of like a privileged person in a non-privileged situation. And as someone, I'm, I'm dark-skinned and I'm, I'm a Black woman. That's narrative doesn't always track with your life. You know, I, I sometimes want a story of Marta or a story of Isabel or a story of mm. Miguel where they're the main character and Esperanza is the side character because there's just such a different... For her, she's like, oh my God, I can't believe people live this way. Like, But on the flip side is the life where you've always lived that way, you know? Yeah. But yeah, of course, for what it is, it's, I think it's a great story. Well, and Marcy, I don't want you to feel left out. I know you didn't <laughs> but what's your overall take on it and kind of how it stands up to our 2020 sensibility? Definitely. Uh, yeah, I definitely share a lot of Akko's sentiments. And honestly, I was just really moved by how well all of this aged and like just how like current a lot of the same issues still are i feel like that's like a a trend i'm noticing a lot in literature just like a lot of the books i've been reading lately it's just like oh yeah this was written in like the 1960s but yeah still tracks like and i think that was really really compelling i i really enjoyed just like just the camaraderie and like the the culture of empathy in this book just seeing how in a lot of ways the way that that we learn empathy is just so deeply social and socialized and how for example like it was only until Esperanza was sort of in a situation where she couldn't really, there was no like class differential. Like everyone just had to truly support one another and lean on each other to survive. Like you, you just saw that like her capacity to express empathy just shift and like expand. And it, it just gave me hope that like, oh, like people can like, this is a muscle that we can always expand mm-hmm. and always exercise. Like it's not like, oh, you're empathetic or you're not. Like it's just like circumstances often facilitate the degree to which we are empathetic. And so it kind of just made me think about just like the politics of like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of going into like theory, but like Go I'm just like, it. like, no, no, it. Of, like, do it. We're here. Like the space and community and just like circumstance and how we can facilitate structures that like can kind of lean the lean, like lean more towards empathy and not so, you know, like not not, not so rife with division and separation and stuff like that. Anyway, so yeah, so that was my interpretation of the book. I really, really liked it. I love just like, I, I like, I know it was just like, I don't know. I was like, when Abuelita came back, I definitely choked up. I was like, oh my yeah. God, together, yeah. everyone's back together. And granted, nothing has changed. Like they're still in the same right. circumstances. Mm-hmm. But like just knowing that they're together, it just helped me sleep better that night. I was like, oh, they're just like, what matters is that everyone's together. So yeah. you know what? They're going to figure it out because they have each other. And that is just such a beautiful message that like, especially I think right now during COVID and all of this quarantine, like, 
it just i was like oh i am lifted i am full i am just happy that we read this i just oh yes it was slept well that night so <laughs> so yeah and also empathy 2021 exactly oh there yes. we go yeah, <laughs> a collab between our podcasts empathy 2021 shirts Here for i it. feel like 2021 still mad at me because i was like fuck 2021 like at the beginning of this podcast but an apology right now oh that's true my bad my bad 2021 i literally haven't even gotten here yet y'all already hate haven't even arrived what is we're gonna we're gonna make shirts for you it's okay other than esperanza rising what have you both been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners it can be anything that you've loved no rules okay i'm gonna do that thing that podcasters do but we just read (laughs) go for it (laughs) we just read when the moon was ours thank you for bringing this up it's so it's just very very good it's very descriptive actually feel like us around the rising the same kind of poetic descriptive language but i think even maybe more magical when the moon was ours is it's just this beautiful story um it's about sam who's a trans pakistani boy his name's Sam, right? I didn't make that up. Samir. Yeah, yeah, Samir. And then Miel, who was in a water tower, and but now she's not. Um, so it's there <laughs> That's in town. Y'all. Anyway, <laughs> but the point is, the, the book is really beautiful. It's really beautifully written. I think it's worth reading. Mm-hmm. And for me, so funny enough, I was actually going to mention that. So now I'm like, whoo! <laughs> like, okay, let me uh, let me get myself together. Um, it, it's hard to isolate to one book. Okay, so okay, so I actually read a book recently called The Disasters by M.K. England, which is basically just like a just like a sort of sci-fi inspired like space adventure with this like ragtag group of teens who are like kind of um, bringing light to this whole heist that's taking place in like the universe and it's just like very absurd like literally you be, you read the book and you're like this is like actually ridiculous but it's just it's just fun and i think right now like the category is fun like the category yeah. is enjoyment mm. the category is laughter like i'm just like mm-hmm. a, a light fun read is always just really really nice so i always recommend that i also recently read a couple months ago giovanni's room by james baldwin which mm. literally as a queer person i was like oh my god this tracks so it's also really short it's only like 150 pages so so yeah both of those books i would highly recommend but yeah anything we read on the podcast like main I've been enjoying it lately, so. Well, and that's a great segue because I would love for you both to share a little bit more about what you do over at Colored Pages Book Club so that SSR listeners can go check it out. Of course, of course. So yeah, so essentially what we do is we sort of take a book a month. Like our whole theme is that, we, you know, we talk about fiction, fantasy, and magical realism written by writers from colorful backgrounds. Colorful backgrounds is essentially our way of saying, you know, folks who are typically underrepresented in literature, narratives that are underrepresented, and just really kind of challenging ourselves to like talk about experiences that don't don't always, you know, encompass our own. They, they can, but also, they, you know, they don't have to. And so it's just a really interesting exploration of just like thought and culture. And yeah, just like we we take a book a month, we kind of break it up in two and we essentially just talk, like talk about what happens. But we also use the literature as a, as a conduit to just kind of like catch up, kiki, hang out with one another. <laughs> Akko and I have been friends for like a minute, like almost a decade Back. at this point. So it's just yeah. like, so it's like, yeah, we have like, you know, literature discussions. It's like, you know, we definitely get into the weeds, but it's also just like, it's just like fun. We're just like hanging out. We're just chilling. Yeah. It's, it's a good time. And I think a kind of our thing is that um, there's two things. I think one, the power of imagination to cause people to empathize mm-hmm. and see the world differently. That's why we kind of do fiction, fantasy, and magical realism because, and not to be that kid, but like Tenny has a coats once said, but he did say it <laughs> once <laughs> at a thing I saw him in. He was like, um, uh, what was it? Fiction, because he was he was writing a stint on Black Panther, which I have. Mm-hmm. Everyone's like, really? Yeah. Anyway, but um, so. And he was, <laughs> and he said, um, fantasy or fiction does the work of 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 informing who will be seen as human twenty years from now. Mm. And there's something to be said about that, the way we imagine ourselves. And he said, the reason people are are people are like, when Black Panther came out, we're like, what kind is not even real? But then he would go on their page and like, but Game of Thrones is. You've got these all these hashtags right. about Game of Thrones, and <laughs> and his point was the work of limiting your imagination or your empathy or your ability to see other people is work that's done as an oppressive effort maybe not so uh, oh no epistemological like like okay. that's the thing Ooh. yeah here i am okay. i'm sorry but it just means like uh, the way we think about things right. controlling right. the way we think about things is something so our hope is that by reading different books and as to you know like black uh, i'm not queer but marcy is queer folks who like are in this space like can we also read other cultures and other people's experiences 
and kind of remove the hegemony lens that we see them through and, and experience people on those that level. People are going to listen to the podcast and be like, y'all didn't do none of that. <laughs> y'all kikied about a book. <laughs> oh my gosh yeah it's it's a it's a really it's like yeah just the ebb and flow i feel like i've listened to episodes and i'm like so one minute we're talking about theory like we're breaking yeah. out queer theory and the next minute we're just like <laughs> literally talking about i don't know like tv ones for my man which is a really wild show by the way um just another whole subplot anyway so yeah it's a good time it's a good time well, <laughs> thank you for sharing i will include links to um colored pages book club in the show notes for today's episode i'm thrilled to share this episode with both of you um as i've said many times on the podcast. As a white, cis, straight woman, I do everything I can to bring a diversity of voices and to represent on this podcast, but mm -hmm. it's it's really amazing to be able to direct uh, my listeners to podcasts like yours that are really doing the work that I can't do, um, given mm -hmm. some of the limitations of my own perspective. So thank you so much for sharing about your podcast, and I hope that the SSR community will go on over and give your show a listen as well. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. We appreciate it. Absolutely. I'll also include links in the show notes to all of the recommendations that you offered and to Esperanza Rising for those who want to go back and give it a reread, maybe over this holiday season. SSR listeners, there will be a fun bonus episode coming for you next week, but no more new book episodes until next year because I'm taking a little break until 2021. I think we all need it. Yeah. <laughs> so much for listening. Marcy Akko, thank you so much for joining me. I just really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much for hosting us. Like this yes. was really, really wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. I had the best time. Thank you. Bye. 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 SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.